If you're not already there, please open your Bibles to Psalm 113. 113. I realize we're a couple of psalms into the great Hallel. Psalms 113 to 118. We've done 113. We've looked at 115. Uh, But we're going to go back tonight and go through the whole set, mostly. And I want to do this because Psalms 113 to 118 could be called the Hallelujah Chorus of Israel. You know it as the Great Hallel. We've been looking at it uh, in a couple of pieces over the last couple Sundays. But the Great Hallel, these six psalms are impressive psalms. They're especially impressive to me and they're exciting to me. They were sung together, and let me just do a little review. They were sung together at each of the three major feasts of Israel. I I realize there were more than three, but the major feasts were the ones that all of the men of Israel were required to come to Jerusalem at least three times a year. They were invited up to seven times a year to come to Jerusalem and celebrate the feasts. And as often as monthly with the new moon festivals they could come, but at least three times a year. All the men of Israel, and I think God by requiring the men assumed that the families would come along as well. But all the men of Israel had to come to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, uh, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. The Feast of Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, or Shavuot, or sometimes referred to as the Feast of Weeks. And then the Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot in the Hebrew. They were also sung, these psalms, which were sung at all three of those major feasts, were also sung at the Feast of Dedication, Hanukkah, and were sung at many other times as well. But they especially fit into the liturgy of Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Now over the years, especially by the time Jesus came on the scene and following, these six psalms became cemented as hymns in the liturgy, or what you could call the Haggadah of the Jewish Passover. You, have you heard that word Haggadah, or maybe you've heard it pronounced Haggadah? It's because we English folk don't really know how to speak Hebrew. The Haggadah is the liturgy of Passover. It's that which is written out, start to finish, and, and Jewish families can purchase a Haggadah and often have one in the home to read through and go through in Passover. And these six psalms became embedded in that as part of the Passover uh, meal, almost like bookends. Psalm 113 and 114 of the Hillel began the Passover. And then after the meal was taken and and the evening was nearly through, they would continue on with Psalm 115, 16, 17, and 18 to finish off the Passover meal. So these psalms have been sung a lot in Hebrew tradition and in Jewish history. But also the Hillel, like many of the psalms before that we've looked at, these psalms are strikingly prophetic. You're going to see this. Uh, One of the treats, I think, of going through the Psalms is the realization of the depth of prophecy that is written here. How often we hear Jesus himself speaking. How often we see explanations and descriptions and illustrations of Jesus Christ in all of the Psalms. And it's been stunning. People, when we started the Psalms, came to me and said, Rick, could we just... I, I can't wait for the prophets. And I was thinking, yeah, that's why we're doing the Psalms. Because the Psalms are the prophets. We're there. And we've seen this going on, we'll see it even more tonight, that these six are amazing in their prophetic nature. But here's the thing that excites me the most of the Great Hillel. Of these six psalms, the one that impresses me more than anything else is the recognition and realization that Jesus sang these songs. Jesus sang these psalms. We know He sang others, we know He spoke others. 
Others are inspired directly by the Spirit of Christ. But these six psalms, we know without the shadow of a doubt that He sang them as He walked in flesh on the earth among His apostles. Which makes them especially endearing to me. I think about Jesus coming to earth and you know, one of the questions people ask is why did Jesus, if He was God in the flesh, why did He pray to God? What was that all about? And the reality is that, keeping it simple at least, not getting too heavy into theology, there are a couple of things that stand out to me as, why, as to why Jesus prayed to God the Father. One was relationship. To maintain relationship. See, he recognized something that often we forget or miss out on. And that's that as long as we're in these earthbound bodies, it takes an intentionality to maintain a good relationship, a healthy relationship with God. So Jesus intentionally got up early in the morning. Jesus intentionally got off by Himself. Jesus intentionally prayed to God the Father because relationship was so important. And when Jesus set aside His glory in heaven and became human, God, yes, but man at the same time, He became earthbound. He limited Himself, as it were, to these human bodies. And so He understands exactly what you and I understand, and that's how difficult it is to keep our focus. And so he prayed to God to maintain that relationship. He also prayed to God for another reason, however. It wasn't just about relationship. It was also example. That we might see, here is how an earthbound person maintains relationship. Here's how you do it. As Jesus prayed to God the Father, so he shows us, hey, if you want to be close to God, it's your call. Pray. Get away with Him. Talk to Him. And so Jesus not only did it because... He required, He demanded, He loved His relationship with the Father, but also because He knew we desperately needed it. And He shows us how. He does the same thing with praise and worship. I mean, if you think praying to God on the person of Jesus, by Jesus, is strange, how about worshiping God? Jesus worshipped God. These are psalms of worship and praise, and Jesus, even in singing these songs, lifted up worship to God the Father. He came to show us the Father, but He also came to show us, again, how earthbound people can relate to the Father. And we relate to Him in prayer, and we relate to Him in worship. God is Spirit. We are not. We have a Spirit, but we are yet to be spiritual fully like God is. And so as long as we're in the flesh, Jesus reminds us, God is Spirit, John 4.24, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. And that's not something that just happens naturally. Our nature naturally tends toward the flesh. So God says, let me set up a couple of things that will help. Prayer and worship. And if you maintain these things, if you do these consistently, it's going to bring about spirituality, a spiritual health to yourself. So we see Jesus relating to the Lord in prayer. We see Jesus showing us the pattern of relationship through praise. And in worship we ourselves learn and continue to relate to God in the Spirit. That's what Jesus did. And so we see Jesus doing this. You can hear almost His voice singing these psalms. And that's what I want you to focus on as we go through. And we see aspects of Jesus in the psalms. Listen for His voice. Because He sang these songs. Earthbound as He was when He became flesh and lived among us, Jesus praised the Father. I love this verse, John 7, 18. Jesus said, He who who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true. 
And there is no unrighteousness in Him. Jesus glorified God. And I love that. Jesus glorified God. God glorified Jesus. The Holy Spirit glorifies them all. And everybody's glorifying everybody in the Trinity. Because they all deserve glory. Because they are all one. The one true God. So we know Jesus was in Jerusalem. We know He was there. At least three times a year for Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. We see Him there in John chapter 10 for the Feast of Dedication. These six psalms being sung at those feasts. Jesus was there singing these psalms. Singing the Hallel. In fact, on the last night, the last Passover, Jesus sang these songs. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. How stunning, how stirring it is. Matthew 26 verse 30 says, After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. The hymn was most likely Psalm 18 which we're going to look at really in depth on Sunday. That hymn, they sang it. Jesus, en route to His betrayal. So knowing that Jesus sang the great Hillel and listening for His voice, let's go through these together tonight. I want to point each one out and and give you a focal point for Jesus in these psalms. Psalm 113. Jesus sang Psalm 113, saying, Hallelujah, Hallel, Yah, to the Lord who raises up. He sings this psalm to the Lord who raises up. The same Lord who would soon raise Jesus up. Let's listen to it. Psalm 113, verse 1. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forever. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? Who is enthroned on high? Who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth? He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He makes the barren woman abide in the house as a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. The God who raises up those who are weak, those who are needy, those who we could even say are dead as Jesus would be. The God who raises up. So Jesus sang these songs even at His own Last Supper. Knowing, as we said recently, there is nothing better than a hallelujah. Nothing better you can say. Nothing better you can sing. Even in the most despairing moments of your life, nothing better than hallelujah. Hallelujah. Is your life in dismay? You're facing times of despair and struggle and uncertainty. Birds falling out of the sky. Fish dying on the shore. Strange things. Or perhaps you're just having trouble making ends meet. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Now Psalm 114. See how quickly we're moving. We already studied, and if you weren't there for Psalm 113 uh, a week ago Sunday, I encourage you to go back and listen because we went and spent some time with that. It's a fantastic psalm. Psalm 114 now is the only one of the six that doesn't contain the word hallelujah, and yet it's part of the great Hallel. Why? Because the whole psalm is a praise to God. The whole thing evokes an attitude of worship as you read through it. And Jesus sang Psalm 114, Hallelujah! To the Lord who redeems Israel. Watch this. When Israel went forth from Egypt, the house of Jacob, from a people of strange language, that is Egyptian, Judah became his sanctuary. Israel, his dominion. The sea looked and fled 
The Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back. O mountains that you skip like rams, O hills like lambs. Tremble, O earth, before the Lord, before the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a fountain of water. Just makes you want to say hallelujah. A psalm of praise to the Redeemer of Israel, who is Jesus. The Messiah come to redeem His people. And so the Redeemer Himself is singing praise to the Redeemer of Israel in Psalm 114. It's marvelous. It's a song of the Exodus. It's a short psalm, but it's poignant in its declaration. Look back at verse 2. Judah became His sanctuary, Israel His dominion. Well, that's interesting. Talk about intimacy and closeness. God says, Judah, I want you to be my sanctuary. Several weeks ago we talked about sanctuary. Well, what's your sanctuary? Where's that place? Perhaps the innermost room of your house where you are most content, where you can kick your shoes off and really relax, where no one can get at you. The place of your greatest peace. God says, Judah, that's what I want you to be for me. Incredible. And he says, Israel is his dominion. I want to dwell with Israel. I want these people to be my people. I want closeness and intimacy. But if we break it down further, we get two more awesome truths out of just this one verse. The, the word Judah, the name Judah in Hebrew. Any of you Bible students remember what Judah means? Praise. Praise. Say it like that. Praise became his sanctuary. It's where God dwells in the worship of His people. Psalm 22, verse 3. You are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. And so when we worship, that's where God dwells. It's where He loves to be. And so our worship, we've talked about it so much lately. It's not just something that happens in us. It's not just something we offer the Father. It's something that that opens the door to God's dwelling among us, even as a people. Judah. Praise was his sanctuary. Israel. Israel. The name Israel means God prevails. So God prevails His dominion. And it fits well together. Because God will prevail to an everlasting dominion. In fact, keep your finger there. Turn over a little ways to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. I love the reminder that God prevails. Especially when we see evil having such a good time on planet Earth. That God prevails even when it seems like nothing's going to turn around. Nothing's going to go right. God prevails. Listen to this, this prophecy of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7 verse 9. This is a vision that Daniel got. In fact, it's a vision he got of the kingdoms of the world beginning with Babylon, going to Medo-Persia, to Greece, to Rome, the four great kingdoms that were about to rise. And Daniel saw this vision. And what's interesting, if you study Daniel, you know there was another vision, a dream by Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar's dream was of the same four kingdoms. But in his dream, they were a mighty statue. Babylon was the golden head. you know, And Medo-Persia, the, the silver arms. And Greece was the bronze belly. And Rome was the iron legs. And, and so he saw this marvelous idol, really, Ultimately, he would set up an idol for himself, huge in its stature. That's man's view of man's rule. A great statue. 
a monument to our greatness. God's view of man's rule is what Daniel sees in Daniel chapter 7 for beasts, for animals. Because when God looks at the rule of man, He sees something that truly is beastly. And so Daniel describes these, and then suddenly he says in verse 9, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took His seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of His head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing out and and coming out from before Him. Thousands upon thousands were attending Him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before Him, and the court sat... And the books were open. And by the way, the description of the Ancient of Days is exactly the same as the description of Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 1. The hair white like wool. Well then I kept looking, verse 11, because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. If you want to know what the horn is, go back and read later on. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. Again, more explanation on that another time. But as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away. Those beasts are the kingdoms of man. That dominion taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. Do you remember those words? Jesus said that. Got him in trouble with the Pharisees. They freaked out when they heard him say that because they knew the Daniel prophecy. And he made it clear this I am who Daniel was talking about. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Wait a minute. I thought you said Jesus was the Ancient of Days. Well, he is. So how did he come up to the Ancient of Days? Well, because God's the Ancient of Days too. Don't try to figure it out. Trinity just accept it. Okay, moving on. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And back in Psalm 14.2, Israel, His dominion. What does that mean? It means the dominion began or is started there with Israel and begins to grow outward. Through Jesus Christ, Messiah first, and then it will spread. There is a kingdom promised For Israel, a kingdom that we'll be part of, a dominion. But it begins there with Israel. Judah became the sanctuary, Israel, his dominion. Now back in Psalm 114, uh, verses 3 through 6, describe what happens when any obstacle gets in the way of the forward march of the dominion of God. The sea looked and fled. The Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams. The hills like lambs. Everybody got out of the way. Because the reality is, gang, obstacles have two options where the Lord is concerned. Get out of the way or skip along joyfully. They cannot stop the forward progress, the forward motion, the will of God the Father. Verse 7, Tremble, O earth, before the Lord, before the God of Jacob. And that verse speaks both of Jesus and God the Father. Jesus the Lord, Adon, Adonai, the God of Jacob, God the Father, who, now note this, who turned the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a fountain of water. The psalmist isn't just repeating himself with the rock and the flint. He's talking about two instances here. Two instances of a rock providing water. Two stories. 
Now before I get to those two stories, listen to the words of the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. I do not want you to be unaware, Paul writes, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, the Red Sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, talking about the manna, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. So Paul draws something out in the Spirit that we wouldn't have known but for his words here. And that's the fact that the example of the rock, and there are two of them that happened to Israel in their journey, two that were told about, speaks of Jesus, refers to Jesus Christ. And it's important to recognize that this rock matters for Israel's past as well as their future. Note this, the Hebrew word for rock in verse 8, who turned the rock into a pool of water, it's the word sur. If you're writing it down, it's T-S-U-R, sur in the Hebrew. It's the most common word for rock. It's used 75 times in the scripture. It's just kind of a rock. In fact, it means boulders or the kind of material from which mountains are formed. I like that. Rock. The kind of material from which mountains are formed. The second word for rock there is flint. The flint into a fountain of water. That word flint is chalamish in the Hebrew. Chalamish. And it's only used in the scriptures three times. Now, when a a certain word is chosen by a Hebrew writer or a a writer of the New Testament, and it's only used three times, it's it's valuable to stop and go, why? What's the significance of that word? Chalamish in the Hebrew means a hard rock of, of perhaps quartz material. A rock that is hard to break. It's the hardest kind of rock. In the, in the Hebrew language. So you've got, on the one hand, sur, boulders, which can be broken. They can crumble. They can fall apart. And they, and they get cracked together and built together and ultimately mountains build out of boulders. But chalamish, the second word, flint, is a hard rock. It's hard rock. For those of you who like hard rock. But check this out. Again, there were two stories in the wilderness. Two rock stories. Exodus 17 was the first one. In verse 6, God said to Moses, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And the word for rock in Exodus 17, same word for rock in the first half of verse 8, Psalm 114. Sur. Strike the sur. Strike the rock. That stone that can be struck and broken, but forms the basis for mountains. And what a perfect picture of Jesus in His first coming. The stone, the rock that was broken on the cross. His his hands cut by the nails. His side speared. His brow broken by the thorns. His back carved up into hamburger. The rock that was broken but would become, as Daniel foresaw in his vision in Daniel chapter 2, verse 45, The rock that would become a mountain, a stone not cut from human hands, but that begins as a rock and ultimately becomes a vast mountain that covers the whole earth, speaking of the king and his kingdom. That's the rock that is being spoken of here. Who turned the rock, sur, into a pool of water. But that's not the only word there. Again, we have kalamish. That's the second rock story with Israel. Numbers chapter 20, verse 8. 
The Lord says to Moses a second time, Take the rod, and you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes, that it may yield its water. And you shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. Moses doesn't speak to the rock, does he? He strikes it out of anger. He calls the people morons. That's the literal word. He's angry with them. God's not. God recognizes the thirst of the people. He knows they're whining, but He knows it's for good reason, and so He wants to provide water, and Moses misrepresents God, and it's in that moment that Moses loses entrance to the Promised Land. You may know that story. What's interesting to me is when we go to Numbers chapter 20, verse 8, the word for rock there, well, it's not Chalamish. When I saw that, I was like, oh, this is such a good example. It's the word Selah, different than Selah in the Psalms, but a different word. And so I started to think, well, okay, well maybe the illusion from one rock to the other, maybe it's starting to break down a little bit, except for this. Moses, later on in the book of Deuteronomy, refers to the second rock, the rock that he struck. And he calls it this, Deuteronomy 8.15. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of Flint, Chalamish. So the second rock is a rock of flint, of quartz material, a hard rock. The first rock, struck by Moses, would probably have burst open to allow the water to flow and the people to drink. Picturesque of Jesus in His first coming, who was struck, broken, living water flows from Him. But that second rock, the hard, unbreakable, flinty rock, speaks of the second coming of Christ Jesus. And a kingdom that cannot be broken. And a king that never will die again. A king that is victorious. The first rock is a common stone. Broken as Jesus was. The second rock, an unbreakable flinty stone. The rock, truly, of our salvation. The rock of Israel's salvation as well. And Jesus sang this song. Jesus sang of the rock. And He sang about Himself. Now Psalm 115. Psalm 115, Jesus also sang. He sang hallelujah. And in Psalm 115, He's now singing to the Lord who requires trust. If you're jotting these down, the first one, to the Lord who... What did we say on the first one? Anybody got that? To the Lord who raises up. The Lord who raises up. Second one, to the Lord who redeems Israel. And now, hallelujah, Psalm 115, to the Lord who requires trust. And you may remember, we went through this on Sunday. Psalm 115 contrasts the idle work of man's hands with the eternal blessing of God's hands. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name give glory. Because of Your loving kindness, because of Your truth. Why should the nation say, well, where now is their God? But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths but cannot speak. They have eyes but they cannot see. They have ears but they cannot hear. They have noses but they cannot smell. And hands but they cannot feel. They have feet but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. And those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. Idol worship. You know, Max Lucado one time wrote about the... uh, stone Christ there in Rio de Janeiro. Perhaps you've seen it. That massive stone statue supposedly of Jesus standing there, arms outstretched before the people of Rio. 
and he can't see what's going on in Rio. You know, what's happening on the beaches, what's happening among the people, and those who go down to party, the stone Christ can't see them. Why not? He has no eyes. There's a little stone heart drawn onto the chest of this huge rock Jesus, but it's a stony heart that cannot feel. And if Rio got into serious trouble, and there was some kind of problem or attack or national emergency, guess what? The stone Christ could not leave the mountain because his feet don't move. It's an idol. It's not a reality. And the idols of our, the work of our hands are like the stone Christ. They can't get us anywhere. But the work of God's hands are completely different. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel, the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, the small together with the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed of the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. The heavens are the heavens of the Lord, but the earth He has given to the sons of men. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But as for us, we will bless the Lord. From this time forth and forever, hallelujah, praise the Lord. And so Psalm 115 is a hallelujah psalm to the Lord who requires trust. And we're moving through the great Hallel here as they're sung together. They didn't stop and get commentary. They just started with Psalm 113 and the singing began. And they would continue on through these psalms. The Great Hillel. The Great Hillel progresses, but as it does so, watch, things get more personal. Psalm 116. Psalm 116. Jesus sings Psalm 116, Hallelujah, to the Lord who will rescue from death. Especially poignant because, again, He sang this at the last Passover, the Last Supper. Praising Hallelujah to the God who rescues from death. This psalm is... A hallelujah psalm for physical healing. We have a pretty good idea who wrote this one. Some of the others not so sure. But this one, we're pretty sure, was written by Hezekiah. Written by Hezekiah. Do you recall his story? I'll read it to you. It's back in 2 Kings chapter 20. In 2 Kings 20, we read of, of Hezekiah. And it says, In those days he became mortally ill. The phrase there literally means sick to the point of death. He's dying. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, came to him and said, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. And then he turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Remember now, O Lord, I beseech you how how I have walked before you in truth and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Why would he weep bitterly if he'd done all those good things for God? Let me give you a little clue here. None of the good things we do for God earns us anything. Hold that thought. Before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him saying, Return, (laughs) go back in there, and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, the God of your father David, I've heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. 
On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord. I will add fifteen years to your life, and I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And then Isaiah said, Take a cake of figs. And they took a cake of figs and they laid it on the boil. Apparently there was a boil that was causing him this, this illness to death. They put the cake of figs on the boil, and he recovered. Best fig Newton he ever ate. Right there. <laughs> Interesting story. Hezekiah, who was one of the good kings, you know, he was a man after David's heart who was after the heart of God. Hezekiah finds out he's going to die. And the Bible says he turns to the wall. He's lying on his bed and he turns toward the wall and just starts to bawl, to weep, to whimper, to whine. I remember doing that when I was a kid. I've watched my own children do that. Just go away, just go away. You know, leaning into the wall. I don't want to see anybody. You know, smashing your face into the pillow. And here's Hezekiah, and he's weeping. And Isaiah chapter 38 recounts the same story. And in verse 14, it says this. Hezekiah writing about himself, he says, Like a swallow, like a crane, so I twitter. I moan. See, he twittered. <laughs> Who knew? This was way back before current technology finally caught up. Scripture's always ahead. He says, I twitter. I moan like a dove. My eyes look wistfully to the heights. Have you ever heard a dove moan? You know that sound? That's, how he's, that's Hezekiah in his bed. <laughs> you know? He's twittering. He's weeping. Oh Lord, I am oppressed. Be my security. It cracks me up because here's this great king of Israel. And he's done all these great things for God. It doesn't matter. He's at death's door. And he's whining like a child. Isaiah, uh, Psalm 116 bears the hallmark hallelujah of, of Hezekiah now rescued from death. So this is after the fact. Looking back, his whining, his weeping, his prayer, and God says, all right, enough with the crying. I'll heal you. And here he comes praising the Lord for it. Verse 1, I love the Lord. Because, now you need to stop right there. I love the Lord because. I love the Lord because. What was the because behind your worship tonight? Did you do it because this is what we do every week? Did you come in and, oh, the music's already playing. Find find your seat quick, okay. Let's sing. Okay, now we're in the song. Were you listening to the the guitar or people singing around you? Were you moved by by the person a couple rows over perhaps who was really into it? I love the Lord because. And then Hezekiah begins in Psalm 116 to lay out a a thoughtful and, and, and cogent and personally articulate worship. It's not generic. Hezekiah's worship in Psalm 116 is not generic worship. It's not, oh, the, the congregation of Israel singing, so I guess I'll join them. It's not, oh, the bridge fellowship, this is our worship time for the first 25, 30 minutes, so this is when we stand and sing. You know, I'll sing because that's what we do. It wasn't because you're emotionally caught up in it. Oh, it just feels so good to praise the Lord. And it does. I love the Lord because. Because why? Why are we singing? Then why are we praising Him? I'm sharing this with you, especially Bible students on Wednesday night. 
Because I want to challenge and encourage you, when you start to praise the Lord, stop and think about why you're doing it. Don't just do it. Stop, because there are so many... We could spend the rest of tonight saying, I love the Lord because... and fill in the blank. And we could go on into tomorrow morning and through next week and really... Our worship and our praise in eternity is going to be one long eternity of I love the Lord because because we cannot stop thinking of reasons that we love the Lord. I love the Lord because He's given me some precious kids. That's just one of a billion things that He has done in my life where I say, I love you, Lord. I love the Lord that He's provided this warm barn on a cold rainy night. Thank you, Lord. I love the Lord because He has generated a fellowship where once there was none. Praise God. And these are simple, trite little things, and yet God has done them. I love the Lord because our worship should be thoughtful, not just emotional. I have no problem with emotional worship, except when there's no thought behind it. When I'm doing it because... Let me put it this way. How would it be if a young man came along and... uh, proposed to his girlfriend like this. He's got the candles lit. The romantic music is flowing. Flowers fill the whole room. And he says, I love you because, well, to be honest, it's a moonlit night and my iPod love mix is just perfect and my hormones are on fire and frankly, I'm just caught up in the moment. That's why I love you. And you can count on my commitment to you Throughout our marriage, anytime I feel this way, what foolish girl would say yes to that? I'm committed to you, Lord, anytime it feels right. Man, when I'm in worship, woohoo, yes, I'm committed. And thoughtless worship will leave us empty. Hezekiah's worship is not thoughtless. You know what that young man's uh, engagement proposal is? It's not committed love, it's carnal lust. And if that's carnal lust, that means our worship can be carnal lust. Our worship is carnal lust when it's all about the emotion of the moment. And it's not about the thoughtful praise of the Father. I love the Lord because. What is the because behind our love for God? Well, now let's back up a bit and go to the source. What is the because behind God's love for us? Because the number one reason I say I love the Lord is because He loved me first. He started the thing. He came after me. He loved me first. What's behind the love of God? Listen to this. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7. The Lord did not set His love on you. I was talking to Israel, but this extends. The Lord did not set His love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. Okay? Lord, why did you set your love on Israel? Verse 8. Because the Lord loved you. I love that. The Lord set His love on you because the Lord loves you. He loves you because He loves you. That's it. There's one reason and one reason alone that God loves His people. Because He loves them. Period. This is not based on our nature or our niceness, on our character or our cuteness. It doesn't depend how we feel, how He feels. It doesn't depend on how we behave. The Lord loves you, loves me, because He loves us. Period. 
And we've got to grasp that. Because when we get that, when we in those bright moments of worship, when we get a glimmer of the fact that He loves me for no reason except that He has chosen to love me, suddenly all of my work and behavior and everything just falls away and it's all about Him. It's not about me. It's not about what I can do to please Him. He just loves me. Because He does. And I love the Lord not because I love, but because He does. I love the Lord, Hezekiah writes, because He hears my voice and my supplications. Because He has inclined His ear to me. Therefore I shall call upon Him as long as I live. Hezekiah gets it. Remember the prayer that he prayed in 2 Kings 20? Lord, I've done all these things for You. I've done all this. Can't You save me? And God comes back and says, I will save you. But for my name's sake. And Hezekiah then turns around and writes this and realizes, I love the Lord because He he heard me. And I love the Lord because I've made myself righteous enough for Him. But because of Him. I love the Lord. Here are a few other things to think through. I love the Lord because He first loved me. 1 John 4.19 We love because He first loved us. Revelation 1.5 To Him who loves us and released us from our sins by His blood... The made us to be a kingdom, priest to His God and Father. To Him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. He loves us. So we love Him. I love the Lord because He has blessed me beyond measure. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Everyone. There are spiritual blessings we haven't even taken hold of yet that God has blessed us with and they're just waiting for us. They're just waiting to be received. And I love that about the Lord. The physical provision of my life is astounding. I love the Lord because I have two kids in college and that ought not be. It shouldn't be. If you had asked me a year ago, Rick, how are you going to get Corey and Hannah to college? I would say, I have no idea. Ask me today, how could you afford to send Corey and Hannah? I, did I share this with you? On Facebook, a few months back, um, a, a parent, Hannah had, had written how much she's loving college at Whitworth, and, and a, a parent had written on Hannah's page, wrote, um, I wish I could afford to send my son to Whitworth too. And I saw that, so I posted under it, so do I. <laughs> I wish I could afford to send my daughter to Whitworth. I can't. There's one reason and one reason alone that Hannah is at Whitworth. God wanted her there. There's no other way I can explain it. If you want to look at the finances of it, I'll show you some other time. It's amazing. It's astounding. I love the Lord. He has blessed me beyond measure. I don't deserve that. Hannah doesn't deserve to be there. But God's making it happen. I love the Lord because He never leaves. He never goes away. Cheryl doesn't leave me. Cheryl's promised not to leave me. But you know what? A day may come when she has to leave me. Hopefully only because of death. Wait, no, I'm not hoping for her death. (laughs) I'm saying that that would be the only reason, but I know this about her and her faithfulness to me. But yet, for all that desire to be with me, she's going to leave, or I'm going to leave, unless Jesus comes first and we leave together and that's our plan. But I love the Lord because He never leaves and will never leave. He said, I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. I love the Lord because He's coming back to get me. 
He said in John 14, too, If I go prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And again, we could spend the rest of the night going through the multiple becauses for loving the Lord. And I love that uh, Hezekiah starts out this way. I love the Lord. Hezekiah's love flows out of this rescue of his life. Verse 3. The cords of death encompassed me. The terrors of Sheol came upon me. I found distress and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I beseech you, save my life. Jesus sang this song. Jesus called upon the name of the Lord, didn't He? Father, Father, take this cup from me. And yet, unlike Hezekiah, God did not rescue Jesus. God did not extend Jesus' life on earth another 15 years. Someone might say, well, wait a minute. We're told that if we call upon the name of the Lord, He will hear us. Jesus called upon the name of the Lord. Did God just not hear Jesus? No, He heard Jesus. In fact, the Bible wants to make sure we know that God heard Jesus. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 says, In the days of His flesh, He offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the One able to save Him from death, and He was heard because of His piety. God heard Jesus in the garden. God knew what Jesus' heart was. The Lord knew that Jesus said, if there's any other way, Father, give it to me. I'll take it. So why did Jesus still die? Verse 5. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is compassionate. That's why. God is a God of all grace, but He's also a God of all righteousness. And the only way that God could fulfill all righteousness and be gracious to us was for Jesus to die in our place. And so while God heard the, Hezekiah and the prayer of Hezekiah and extended his life, God heard the prayer of Jesus and ended his life. Because he is a God of all grace and righteousness and compassion. We have got to learn to see the Lord through the lens of grace. If we don't look at God with the understanding of grace at the heart of His character, we miss who He is. We misunderstand Him. We misrepresent Him. We don't get Him. Hezekiah was rescued from death. Jesus was not because God is gracious. And if you in your life have ever said, why God didn't you grant me this? Why didn't you do this for me? Why didn't you save Him when I prayed that you would? Why didn't you change this despairing situation for me? Why didn't you hear me? Now see, the grace perspective says, I know my Father loves me. I know my Father is a God of all grace, righteousness, compassion. I know He hears me. I'm going to trust Him. No matter what happens. Whether I get the answer to my prayer or not, doesn't matter. He's a God of grace. And so that God of grace is going to act in full grace and full righteousness. And it doesn't matter if I see it or not. Hallelujah. I will trust Him. The God of all grace. That's a pretty simple-minded faith, but I think it's the faith that we've been called to. Verse 6. The Lord preserves the simple. Oh, that's good news. I was brought low and He saved me. 
Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. In other words, chill out in the Spirit. Relax. Stop stressing about life. Return to your rest. Hezekiah is able to say, I was freaking out about my death and God gave me 15 years and now I can just relax and rest. It's funny because how long did it take for Hezekiah to start resting again? after Isaiah came back into the room. Remember, Isaiah hadn't even left the court before God said, go back and tell him. So Isaiah goes back. Hezekiah, he's up against the wall. He's twittering. He's weeping, you know. And Isaiah says, hey, 15 more years. How long did it take for him to compose himself and relax? And if Hezekiah had known what God was going to do, he never would have turned to the wall and started whining. He just would have prayed immediately. God is a God of all grace. Verse 8, You have rescued my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from stumbling. And nothing on earth causes stumbling more than death. Nothing causes tears and heartache more than death. And yet it was after Jesus' resurrection from His death, after He had died, that He declared... I am the first and the last. The living one. And I was dead and behold I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys. I have the keys of death and Hades. You want out? I got the keys. I do. It's me. Revelation 21.4 says He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first order of things have passed away. So if you want to not worry about death and not stress over it, Jesus has the keys. And all we have to do is turn to Him, which is always better than turning to the wall. Verse 9. I shall walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Now, that's personal for Hezekiah. He's just talking about himself. But it's prophetic of Jesus' resurrection. Because Jesus would, as Job declared. You remember this? Job 19.25. Job said, As for me, I know my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will take His stand on the earth. Job prophesying, maybe unwittingly, but prophesying of the resurrection of Jesus. At the last, He's going to stand on the earth. Prophesying the second coming. And Hezekiah here. I shall walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Yes, these are Hezekiah's words, but they're also Jesus' words. I'm going to walk before the Lord. In the land of the living. It's personal for us too. Because we, in Jesus, who holds the keys, will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die, John 11. Verse 10. Now verse 10 he says, I believed when I said I am greatly afflicted. It's one of those verses that you could just skip right over and keep going because it doesn't make a lot of sense and people won't catch it and probably won't ask about it later, so why stop? But we're going to stop. I believed when I said I am greatly afflicted. What does that mean? That he knew he was sick? I mean, what does that mean, Hezekiah? I stop because you've got to get this. This is a cry of confidence. Hezekiah is saying, I knew he would do it. What? I thought he was turned toward the wall and weeping. Yeah, but in that weeping, who is he talking to? The Lord. 
Hezekiah knew where to turn. And even though he was fearful and distressed, he still turned to the Lord. He still had confidence that if I have any hope here, it's with God and he prays. And affliction has that kind of effect on a heart of faith. God allows us to be in death-like situations or despairing situations because you know what happens? If He knows we have faith in Him already, it tends to increase faith. It doesn't shatter it. It increases it. Psalm 119.67 writes, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Now I keep your word. What's the difference between going astray and keeping your word? Affliction. Affliction is not as bad a thing as we might think it is. God can use it. And in Hezekiah's case, he's afflicted unto death, and yet he's saved. His faith wells up, confidence wells up in the Lord. How do you know that? How do you know that this is Hezekiah expressing confidence? Because Paul tells us. Paul quotes this very verse. He quotes it over in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verse 12, Paul writes, So death works in us, but life in you. But having the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. He's quoting Hezekiah right there. We also believe, therefore we also speak, knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. It's a statement of confidence. I believed when I said I'm greatly afflicted. I knew God could come through for me. I said, verse 11, in my alarm, all men are liars. What men? Doctors, perhaps? Naysayers who took one look at Hezekiah's boil and said, that's going to kill you, man. People who didn't have faith that Hezekiah had came around and said, oh man, we better start getting the coffin ready and you know, what do you want to wear? Because we've got to figure that out. And you got some songs for your funeral. And Hezekiah said, these people are liars. They alarm me. They upset me. They're the naysayers. And you know what, gang? Faith denies negativity. Faith denies negativity. Negative talk, sour thinking, pessimism. These things that take us down in despair never come from the place of faith. I believe, therefore I speak. And by faith, we speak about our Rescuer. By faith, we look into the face of affliction and adversity and we say, God's got His hand in this. And faith, Romans 10.17 tells us, comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of Christ. Verse 12. What shall I render to the Lord for all His benefits toward me? What, how can, what do I give back? What do I do in response to the love of God? And Hezekiah comes out and gives three responses. He first offers a toast of gratitude. Verse 13. I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. He gives a toast. I'm going to lift the cup of salvation. What's the cup of salvation? We have a beautiful picture of it in communion when we lift the cup and it doesn't matter if it's a little cup or a big chalice the picture is the same that we lift the cup of salvation when we share in the Lord's Supper in communion it's a marvelous thing God has given us we do it every week at the bridge we could do it far more often than that Jesus says as often as you drink of it remember me think about me the cup of salvation Hezekiah says I toast you Lord praise the Lord because of the salvation He's given me. And in essence, every time we take communion together, we are toasting the salvation of the Lord. We are saying, praise God. He has saved our lives. A second thing, Hezekiah said, I'll give a toast of gratitude. I'll bring a generous attitude. Verse 14, I shall pay my vows to the Lord. 
Oh, may it be in the presence of all His people. A generous attitude. In the presence of all the people, He says. Now this is interesting to me. He says the commitments, the vows, the promises I made to the Lord, I will fulfill. And note this, He says publicly. And He's talking about tithes and offerings and givings. And I'm going to do it publicly. Well, wait a minute. This could get uncomfortable here. Because I know you started talking about worship and we changed things at the bridge. So are you going to start passing plates and bags so that we can more publicly offer our tithes and offerings? No. But you know, I, I wonder uh, I wonder if it wouldn't be more joyful. If we could take out the motivational mess, you know, our pride or our embarrassment at how little we give or our, you know sense of is anybody watching as we give if we could take all that human flesh stuff out of there and just give to the Lord wouldn't that be a wonderful thing can you imagine without the selfishness and pride of man if we passed if we set up maybe a a, a box right in the middle and we said it's offering time and everyone went yes how much do I have today praise the Lord take it all father you see there's joy There's joy in the offering when there's joy in the offering. There's joy in the offering when there's joy in the offering. If our giving to the Lord is not constrained and I don't know if I can afford this or I just can't do it or hey, I hope people are watching as I'm dropping in the box. All those motivations mess up the joy. The joy of just handing to Father. I was asked recently, sent an email about tithing. Should we tithe? Should we not tithe? I get these every now and then. Oftentimes... And husbands, listen, oftentimes the wife is emailing saying, I'd like to tithe, but my husband doesn't want to. He tells me we can't afford to. And I write back, tell him he's a moron. No, I don't. I don't say that. I get these questions about tithing. Let me give you the bottom line on fulfilling a vow, on, on giving to the Lord. It is not about legalism. And it is not about buying a a moment of your salvation. It's not about fulfilling some righteous requirement in you. Offering, tithing, giving is about faith. Period. When you you give to the Lord, you're saying, I trust that you're going to take care of me. That's why when when I talk about tithing, especially the whole concept of 10%, 10% of my gross income, that just doesn't work out on paper. It never does. But if you do it joyfully, out of faith, and I would say, wives, tell your husbands, and husbands, listen. Do it joyfully. God says, test me in this. See if I won't open the the storehouses of heaven and provide for you. Just, Just give me a shot. Try me. And we go, well, I'd like to, Lord, but I've seen my budget and I just can't do that right now. Okay? You miss out on the joy. Cheryl and I missed out on the joy for 35 years of our life. We missed out. I didn't, I didn't know. I stressed. I, I know I've said this before, but I stressed over bills. I still do until I come to that line item and go, oh. I even typed in on, on, on my little ledger sheet. I typed in, trust me, <laughs> right by the tithe so that I could every time say this is not about do I have enough this is not about am I fulfilling an obligation this is about faith 
I trust that he's going to take care of us. Did I mention Hannah was at Whitworth University? (laughs) There is joy in the offering when there's joy in the offering. And by the way, we're all going to offer freely. We're all going to volunteer freely. We're all going to do it joyfully in the kingdom. Why not start now? Psalm 110 verse 3, Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power and holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. A few weeks ago we talked about that. That means we are bright-eyed and bushy-tailed up in the morning, ready to praise the Lord, serve the Lord, do whatever He wants us to do joyfully. And there's not going to be any selfishness. There's not going to be any pride. And there's not going to be any shame or doubt or worry or fear. It's just going to be praise the Lord. But you can start now if you'd like to. Now, he said, you know, I, I lift a cup of salvation, a cup of praise, a cup of, of uh, an attitude of gratitude, all of this. He says these things, but then before he says the third one, he inserts this. I think it's interesting. Verse 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. That's a huge truth. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. Gang, that's quite a recognition from Hezekiah after he was saved from dying. It would have been a huge statement of faith if he had said it when he found out he was about to die. If when Isaiah said, get your house in order, this disease is to death, if he had said at that point, hmm, alright, okay, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. But he didn't say it then, he said it after he was healed. Now here's the problem with the healing of Hezekiah. God granted his request, but Hezekiah's extra 15 years yielded some bad results. I'm not thinking about anybody in particular. But isn't it true that in some cases where people are healed, it probably would have been better if they had just died? Oh, I don't mean because they're a jerk or they're an idiot, but sometimes when death is right at the door and then there's some additional years, it just... At least in Hezekiah's case, I'm not encouraging anyone to go out and commit either murder or suicide. In Hezekiah's case, it would have been better for Israel if King Hezekiah had died. How can you say that? Well, in his last 15 years, Hezekiah fathered Manasseh, the most wicked, evil king in the history of the kingdom of Judah. Manasseh wouldn't have come on the scene. This evil evil son in the last 15 years of his life the extra 15 years not only did he father Manasseh but he fascinated Babylon what do you mean Babylon sent an envoy to Israel and Hezekiah proudly showed the treasures of the temple of Solomon and that envoy from Babylon went home and within 80 years Babylon was there destroying Israel and taking all of those treasures back to Babylon Hezekiah did that in the last 15 years of his life. Wouldn't have happened otherwise. All I'm saying is Hezekiah was absolutely right. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. What if Jesus had insisted on extra time? Lord, just an extra year. I've only had three years of ministry. Come on, I could do so much more. Give me ten more years. Give me five. Give me something. Instead, remember what Jesus said? Not my will, but your will be done. Oh, take this cup. If it's possible, let it pass from me. Matthew 26. Yet not as I will, but as you will. 
And gang, it's not a lack of faith. It is greater faith than Hezekiah's prayer for healing. I'm not saying you shouldn't pray for healing either. Don, I'm glad you're with us. I'm glad that you didn't go yet. And I was convinced the whole time we talked about this that you weren't supposed to go yet. I didn't want to get your hopes up, but I was pretty sure this was not going to take you. But there are times where we have to say, look, and Don, by the way, did say this. I would love to be healed, Lord, but I want your will to be accomplished. How much better for Hezekiah and the people of Israel if Hezekiah had just simply said, your will be done, Father. Your will be done. Sometimes it's better to go when it's your time. Well, how will I know? You don't. So leave it to the Lord. He does. When is the time for my departure? He knows. Leave it to Him. If you're sick and you're dying and the doctors are not given much hope, leave it to the Lord. Lord, I'd love to stay and serve You. It's like Paul said. I'm torn between the two. If I stay here, it's more fruitful labor, but you know, I, I desire to be with Christ. You make the call, Father. You decide. I think that's the single greatest case against suicide in our world is that we say, Lord, you decide. It's the single greatest case against abortion. Lord, you decide. We don't make that decision. We don't mess with the choice of when a life goes or how long a life stays. That's His call. His will be done and not mine. So lift a cup in a toast of gratitude. Offer up a generous attitude. Number three, He brings a heart of servitude. Verse 16, O Lord, surely I am Your servant. I am Your servant, the son of Your handmaid. You have loosed my bonds. Son of your handmaid. It's a great phrase. We've heard it before. David used it. Psalm 86, 16. And it's Hebrew phraseology for saying, I am to you, Father, as a child of your slave girl. When a child was born to a slave, that child would belong to the slave owner. And that's what Hezekiah writes here. I am to you, son of your handmaid, David described himself that way. And by the way, Luke chapter 1, verse 38, Mary said, Behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. And Jesus was the son of the handmaid of the Lord. So again, Jesus, singing this psalm, would be singing about himself. Verse 17. To you I shall offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving and call upon the name of the Lord. I shall pay my vows to the Lord. Oh, may it be in the presence of all His people, in the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of you. Oh, Jerusalem, hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Has the Lord been good to you? And has He blessed you? Well, has He? Okay, good. If you're with me. Do you love the Lord? The best response a person can give the Lord is self-sacrifice. Not because it buys you anything, but to sacrifice your desires, your wants, your life, to lay it on the altar before the Lord and say, whatever you want to do with this, Father, it belongs to you. That's what Jesus did. Because He loved us so much. Because He loved the Father, because Jesus loved you and me, we're told Romans 5.8, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. Now, I believe the Spirit of Christ inspired all of the writers of the Hillel and that we've been hearing Jesus 
We've been hearing His voice, His singing. And that the Spirit of Christ is behind and, and inspiring Hezekiah, even here, to write Psalm 116. At a minimum, as I said before, we can know for sure that Jesus sang this psalm. And it flows beautifully right into the next one, Psalm 117. So in our list keeping track, Jesus sang Psalm 117, Hallelujah, as the Lord who Himself rejoices in the midst of His brethren. Watch this. Praise the Lord, all nations. Laud Him, all peoples, for His loving kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord is everlasting. Praise the Lord. And we're done. Psalm 117 is the shortest chapter in the Bible. The shortest psalm given. It's interesting because it comes before Psalm 118, which I'll give you a little heads up for Sunday, is the central chapter of the Bible. And Psalm 19, right after the central chapter of the Bible, is the longest chapter in the Bible. So we have the shortest, we have the middle, and we have the longest, which is an interesting flow, and we'll talk more about that on Sunday. But in this wonderful little two-verse psalm, 17 Hebrew words in all, it is stunningly significant because there are two things that emerge here, and the first is the Spirit of Christ commands world missions. Verse 1 again, Praise the Lord, all nations, laud Him, all goyim, all peoples, all goyim, the word, the Hebrew word, Gentiles or nations, goyim. I, I think I've shared this before, that this is not a nice word for a Jewish person to call a non-Jew in our world even today. If you ever hear a Jewish person under their breath refer to you as a goy, they're cutting you down. So put down. The goyim is just the plural of goy. So, you know, all you goys out there, you non-Jewish people, it's a cut down, a, a sad mentality began to arise in Israel by the time Jesus came about. By the time He walked among us. Especially among the Orthodox Jewish leadership of Jesus' day, the Goy were looked at negatively. And if an Orthodox Jew ran into a Goy, a Gentile, they would immediately go home, burn the clothes they were wearing, and take a mikvah, a bath, to wash off the filth. The ultra-Orthodox in Jesus' day believed that the Goy, the Gentiles, were good for basically one thing, fuel for the fires of hell. And they wanted nothing to do with them, and they by that time had completely lost the commission of Israel to be the light of the world. Israel was told first, you're the light of the world, Isaiah the prophet. God said through Isaiah to tell this to Israel, you're going to be a light, I want you to be the light. And they decided, no, because we don't want to have anything to do with the non-Jewish folk, the Goy. Even though their own scriptures demand it, Psalm 117, praise Him, all nations laud Him, all people, not just the Jewish people. All people, all Goyim, should praise the Lord. Now listen, this is awesome. After the greatest theological explanation in the New Testament about God's plan for Israel, Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul turns around and writes this in Romans 15. Verse 8, he says, For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision, Jewish people, on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for His mercy. And it is written, Therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles and I will sing your name. And again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. And again, Romans fifteen eleven, he quotes Psalm 117, verse 1. 
And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all peoples praise Him. The call to world missions. The call to the salvation of God going out to every man, every woman, everyone who has ever walked on the face of the earth. World missions was never an afterthought with God. It was always a forethought. It was always the plan from day one that everyone is to have the opportunity to join the people of God. And this is where I completely depart from Calvinist doctrine. Because in Calvinism, the doctrine of limited atonement teaches the following. That while atonement is sufficient for all, it is only efficient for the elect. Those who are predetermined by God to be saved are the only ones who have the chance, and therefore anyone not of the elect will not be saved. And God has has predetermined certain people to go to hell and certain people to go to heaven, and it flies in the face of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is not what the gospel teaches. I might be stepping on toes. I don't mean to step on toes. I just mean to declare what does Scripture say? John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Peter said in 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow about His promise as some count slowness but is patient toward you not wishing for any to perish but for all to come to repentance. Now all won't. But none are limited. All won't be saved. But anybody can be saved. All can come. That's free will. And the Bible teaches it. And it was given to man in the very beginning. Adam, don't eat of that tree. Free will. You have a choice here. You can choose the Lord. You can choose to love the Lord and follow the Lord. Or you can reject Him. And that God gives to us. And He does not steal from us by determining our fate. Yeah, but doesn't God already know? Of course He does. He's God. But knowing what you're going to do and forcing you to do that are two different things. And God doesn't drag anybody kicking and screaming into heaven. But He will save anyone who simply calls on the name of the Lord to be saved. And so here in this smallest of all psalms, Christ commands world missions. You get out there and you tell the world because there are still... How many people in this area don't know Jesus? How many people tonight are lost... How many are going to hell tonight if Jesus shows up? Tell them. Praise the Lord all nations. Laud Him. All peoples. And then the final thing here in verse 2, for His loving kindness is great toward us and the truth of the Lord is everlasting. Praise the Lord and the Spirit of Christ calls us to worship. Now don't miss this because it's huge to me. Jesus is the worship leader in Psalm 117. He's singing the psalm, you know, the the great Hallel. He's singing with the apostles. He's singing at the feasts of Israel. But Jesus is the worship leader. These, These words of Psalm 117 are wonderful. But equally important is the one singing these words. And Psalm 22, quoted in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12, says, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. Jesus says, I will sing your praise. Jesus in the midst of all of us is praising God with us. It's astounding to me that He is worshiping the Lord. And He did it right there on that Passover night. He praised the Lord in the midst of His brethren. He will do it again in the midst of the congregation. Jesus as our worship leader. And I can't wait to hear His voice. Wow. Can you imagine hearing Jesus sing these psalms? 
I mean, that's what I long for. To be in His presence, to hear the voice. Unfortunately, now, we're going to have to wait for the last song of the Great Hallel until Sunday morning. Psalm 118. We'll save it. Lord willing, and the saints don't rise, we'll be back. We'll look at this one. But I'll give you this much if you want to jot it down. Jesus also sang Psalm 118, Hallelujah, as the stone rejected by the builders. So if you weren't sure if Jesus was singing about himself up to this point, wait till Psalm 118. It's the psalm of the builders rejecting the stone. And that's Jesus Christ. Sunday we come to the center, spiritually and literally, of the entire Bible. In fact, Sunday we hit the halfway point of our walk through the Word. I'm excited to do that with you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You for the Hallel Psalms, the great Hallelujah. We proclaim tonight, Lord, Hallelujah to Your name. And we love You because You first loved us. We love You because of so many things. Father, will You bring to mind the next time we worship whether it's in our cars on the way home or Sunday morning or in our houses or with friends, the next time we worship, Father, may we do so thoughtfully, loving You for all that You are and all that You've done. May we say we love You because. Father, tonight we just lift up our praise to You. You are a great God. Jesus, You are worthy of all praise. And we look forward to the day when we hear Your voice lead us in worship. We long for that. In Jesus' name, amen.